Welcome to Politicology. I'm Ron Steslow. This is our weekly roundup, where we bring in a rotating panel of experts to discuss the truth you need to know behind the most important stories of the week and how they're shaping the political landscape. On today's all-star panel, returning to the roundup is Politicology favorite, crisis communications consultant, and MSNBC political analyst, our good friend Susan Del Percio. Good to see you again, Susan. Great to be with you today. Also returning to the roundup is Mike Madrid. Mike is a national political strategist, our resident expert in demographics and Latino politics, my fellow co-founder of the Lincoln Project. He also lectures on race, class, and partisanship at the University of Southern California. Mike, what did you have for breakfast today? I had numbers for breakfast today. (laughs) (laughs) Only people who have been with us for a while are going to get that reference. On this week's roundup, the newest form of single-issue voters and the growing rifts in the Republican Party, Mitch McConnell playing chicken with your job in the fight over raising the debt ceiling, the news that major U.S. companies committed to training and hiring Afghan refugees arriving in the U.S., and finally, in our crackling segment for Politicology Plus subscribers, we're going to talk about the series of scoops and bombshell reports coming from Bob Woodward and Robert Costa's new book, Peril. If you're not already subscribed to Politicology Plus, you can head over to politicology.com slash plus to get the plus segment and lots more and join our community there. Let's dig in. There have been several stories over the last week about the growing rifts within the Republican Party. Several have focused on the divisions between establishment Republicans and more overt Trump supporters. And we'll talk about a couple of those stories in a minute, but I want to start with this piece from The Bulwark, which I think you both saw by by Mona Chairn, about why she's currently a single-issue voter, as she puts it. And that issue is the Republican Party's attack on the republic. She wrote about people like Aaron Van Langeveld getting pushed out of his post on the Michigan State Board of Canvassers for certifying the election results. The attacks, as we all remember, on Georgia Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger for refusing to cave to Trump's demands that he find, in air quotes, 11,780 ballots to steal the election in Georgia. So before we talk about the other stories, how are you both thinking about Mona's assessment of the state of the Republican Party? Mike, why don't you lead off? Well, I think Mona articulated exactly what my own sentiment, my own situation is as well is I think that you know in this time, there's been a lot of questions about people who have been vocally opposed to Trump that were former or current Republicans who are saying uh, why, we've, why we have been in opposition to this regime and, and to this development. And it's not that I've had some sort of battlefield conversion to a different ideology or different belief system. In fact, I'm more committed to my previous belief system probably than ever before, but there is an immediate threat to the republic as she, she you know, artfully, um, you know, articulated and and nothing else matters until yeah. that threat is gone it, the, there's no battle of ideas unless there's a battle for the structure of our government uh, that is won first and it, it is an immediate dangerous threat and that's why I'm engaged in it that's why um you know I've spent you know my career my time my life my experience my energies in making sure that we've got a system to be able to have a battlefield of ideas and we're not quite in that time yet but what I think again Mona uh put into 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 very eloquent words um speaks for so many of us who who realize that the immediacy and the threat to what has happened to the country um takes takes precedent over everything else. Yeah, I I totally agree. It was for me it was a good reminder 
of the landscape and you know what it was a recap of all of the all of the ways we've seen people be attacked just for standing up for the integrity of the of the election over the last you know over the last and that's nine part months. Of, that's, that's part of the tactic. Yeah. We've, we've got to remind ourselves. I mean, this is this is this is like Mussolini. This is about violence. It's about intimidation. It's about threats. It's about destroying your 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 personal profile. It's to, it's about attacking you through cyber attack threats. It's about threatening your family, as we saw with Representative Gonzalez. It's yeah. it's it's about intimidation. And that's a sign of authoritarianism. That's yeah. a sign of trying to demand fealty to the leader. And the worst thing you can do is not even change your opinion or your ideology. It's to it's to speak out against what is happening. And that's that's the attack. That's where it comes from. And it's awesome, very, often very violent. Yeah. And we'll talk about a couple of those. I others. call it neo yeah, yeah, I call it neo-fascism. Just so you know, yeah. like I'm past like Trumpism. Like let's just call it exactly yeah. what it is. It's neo-fascism. There is no principle. There is only violence to overthrow basically yeah. our existing governance system. Yeah. So Susan, did this did this resonate with you in the same way it did for me in in terms of like I have not historically really ever thought of myself as a single issue voter. And I think that like most people who work in politics don't tend to think that way. But I, I, I do now. Like I, I, I really felt what she was writing about, and like, okay, I get like, this is the only thing that matters. Um, how, how are you thinking about it? Well, I know what you mean about thinking of yourself as a single issue voter because we think of issues yeah. as traditional, whether it's tax policy, foreign affairs. It's it's different now because we're talking about democracy. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and do you support it? Yeah. So to me, that's not an issue. I think I took away from it. It's not that I'm a single issue voter pro-democracy. It's that I'm just pro-democracy and anyone who is against it, I am not with. Yeah. And that's not an actual issue. That's just such a fundamental principle. I can't even put it. I mean, it's a clever way of doing it, no doubt. Yeah. But I think about, you know, as Mike said, I feel the same way. I have been consistent with my political values for 30 years. Uh, when I came into the party, we, it was a big, the big fight was, do we, is it more open? Do we open up the tent? If you will, you saw more moderates like Christy Todd Whitman or governor Pataki who tend to be fiscal conservatives and social liberals. Then it kind of moved into the, the establishment versus the freedom party and the tea party leading into the freedom party caucus. But at least the, the establishment was still about governance. And even the Freedom Party had a little bit of governance to them. What we're seeing now is there's no governance on the other side. They, don't, they have no fundamental core beliefs. Donald Trump came into 2016 with not one single core belief. And that's how he, I, I really loosely use this word, govern. Or spent his time, I'll say that's how he spent his time in office, never developing any core beliefs. So what we see now is a bunch of people who are just saying, not them. And, and, and it's getting to the point where it is very dangerous, as Mike points out. It's a violent revolution. That's what we are seeing. That's what January 6th was about. And that wasn't based on an issue. That was based on hatred. 
that was based on overturning the, the government. Like these people don't even want to exist within. It's not like they want to get elected. It's not like they're saying, OK, elect me because I believe in this and I'll bring this to Washington. Yeah. They're just saying, I'm going to get rid of these other people who are really bad in their minds. So Mona wrote that Oklahoma GOP chairman John Bennett has endorsed a primary challenger to unseat uh, Senator James Langford, who's a two term incumbent senator who did not vote to impeach Trump, but also didn't vote to overturn the elections by objecting to the Electoral College tally. And we've seen Trump endorse Jody Heiss, who's running for Secretary of State in Georgia, and Mark Fincham in Arizona, both of whom, by the way, supported his election lies. And, you know, I wonder what it's going to mean for the country if endorsement of the lies around the election and participation in a coup attempt remain the shibboleth. Uh, I, this is really just an excuse to word, use the word shibboleth for being for being in the Republican Party. By the way, you guys are both familiar with the West Wing. I, I was I just going to say, okay. were you watching there, the West there, Wing? <laughs> I mean, there is a there is a terrific scene. Uh, if you just Google shibboleth West Wing, there is a beautiful scene uh, about about this word um, in, in the West Wing, which is one of my favorite shows of all time. But uh, shibboleth, by the way, is a word that uh, that was used in, in ancient times uh, by the Israelites to basically test whether or not people coming across uh, the river were imposters or if they were actually um, safe uh, to, to interact with. And uh, and it's now sort of being used, whether or not you believe the election was stolen, um, is is now being used as a modern shibboleth within the Republican Party. And I wonder what you think that means for the country, if that's where we are. Because Mike, like Susan said, democracy isn't necessarily an issue, right? It shouldn't be an issue, but it is now the defining difference between the two parties. Well, yeah, and it's, I, look, this is a, it's a test case as to whether or not you're willing to suspend reality for the party. That's what it is. It, it's, a, it's, a, it's a loyalty test. It's saying, are you willing to lie for us? Are you willing to destroy the institution for us? Are you willing to overturn uh, democracy, an American-style democracy, in order to be part of this movement, this part of neo, neo-fascist movement? I think Susan's right. That's a great term for it. It, it is neo-fascism. And as long as you're willing and loyal to, 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 to suspend reality and you're willing to lie for us, then there's a place for you in this, in this, in this social movement. And that's what's so scary about what is coming next is in many ways the January 6th insurrection has factionalized, right? It's now going yeah. to school boards. It's going to city councils. It's going to secretary of state's offices throughout the country, and in close elections, which most of our elections are relatively close nationally, um, especially in some key states, having a secretary of state who's willing to overturn an election um, and lie to do that puts the Republican in a very precarious situation, um, whether it's seating electors that challenge it based off of the dominance of the legislature by the Republican Party or whether it's by simply finding, quote unquote, finding enough votes to to change the outcome of the election that you then um, certify as a secretary of state means that elections don't matter anymore. Yeah. And that's where we're at. That's what is happening. And it's a very real threat, again, to who who we are as a people and to our 250-year history. Incidentally, you know, democracies don't have really long histories uh, th- throughout history. They don't last very yeah. long. They're, they're extraordinarily fragile. 
And ours is the longest surviving one. Ours is the longest surviving one to this point. And and so these this pressure point, in many ways, we've had luxury as Americans is not having faced this kind of an internal threat for for an extraordinarily long time, certainly not within living memory, but but here it is. And it's not going away, and it's getting more extreme. It's getting more violent. And like I said, the whole point of these fealty tests is to demonstrate whether or not, literally, the shibboleth here is whether or not you will suspend reality. Yeah. Will you lie for us? And if you are, then you've got our imprimatur. Your loyalty is to this party, to this movement, to this individual more than it is to your country. So one of the really important things uh, that she focuses on are these down ticket races, which we've talked about a lot on on this podcast and how important they are. Um, How would you talk to someone who has maybe only ever voted for one Democrat. Let's say they voted for Joe Biden, right? Let's say that they were they were a Lincoln voter that we that we recruited, that we cultivated last year, and uh, and and they tend to ticket split for down ballot Republicans. How would you talk to them about the importance of these races because they're coming up? I mean, Virginia is about to have a really important off year election. How would you talk to these these people who who pulled the trigger for for Joe Biden and and now are you know that was their one good deed and they now they want to go back to the comfort of voting for Republicans like they have for their their entire lives, Susan? So I would describe it this way: you're building a bench. So do you want to build a bench that people that come up through the process who are principled, or and even if you disagree with them, at least they're principled, or do you go with the Republican because you're just not used to doing it? And why you have to, or you're not used to voting for a Democrat. And the way you have to explain it is the city councilman becomes the assemblyman. That assemblyman becomes maybe the con- con- member of Congress or a state senator. And then maybe the senator from the state. You're growing a team and you have to look at the down ballot races of who do you want your party to be about? which is why people need to vote in primaries first. Like I would say, get out there and vote in the primary. And then, you know, then we could talk about how how you kind of have to go against what your your grain and voting for a Democrat, but get out there and vote in primaries. That's the most important thing. And if not, you have to stop the team from growing from this, this anger and, and really so like, like uh, Mike just said, it's a social movement. This is not, you know, we want to, this is not a political moment. Let's no, keep cultural. politics. Let's, yeah. right. Let's believe in governance. Who do you want governing and making decisions on what your budget should be for garbage pickup? Hmm. That's how I would describe it. Do you think that this person is capable of doing that and has the background? Or are they just yelling and screaming? Hmm. And then I think that it becomes a pretty easy decision. It's, you know, like you said, it's like I voted for Joe Biden. I'm still a registered Republican. Like it was a no-brainer. Couldn't have the lunatic there any longer. Well, it just kind of goes all the way down, but you just can't let it breed. And that's what down ballot races are all about. It's you're voting down ballot, but eventually they will become top of the ticket candidates. Yeah, that's a good way to think about it. Making his second consecutive weekly roundup appearance is former President George W. Bush. The Wall Street Journal reported on Wednesday that Bush's first campaign event of the 2022 midterms will be a fundraiser to support Wyoming Republican and possibly the only person Trump thinks about as much as himself, Liz Cheney. 
She is, of course, the daughter of Bush's vice president, Dick Cheney, and co-hosts of the fundraiser include Bush's longtime political advisor, Carl Rove, who also consulted with Trump during his 2020 campaign, and former U.S. Senator Kay Bailey Hutchison, who served as U.S. ambassador to NATO under Trump. They join former speakers of the House, John Boehner and Paul Ryan, who have also raised money for Cheney this year. Senators Mitch McConnell, Lindsey Graham, and Mitt Romney have all contributed to Cheney's campaign through their committees. I repeat, Lindsey Graham has contributed to Liz Cheney's campaign through his committee. And we're seeing the sides of this proxy fight take shape with the establishment figures behind Cheney and uh, and Trump behind Hegman. So how should we be thinking about this race in the larger context of the divisions within the Republican Party, Mike? So when when this first happened, when this rift first happened with Liz Cheney, I was mentioning that it was just the beginning of the fight. It wasn't the end, right, of mm-hmm. Liz Cheney. And that that's exactly, I think, what is playing out. A couple of things to be mindful of here. This neo-fascist element that has arisen in the party is not going to go away anytime soon. It's not going to be vanquished. This is not going to be a fight where the old establishment guard is going to be able to you know, win 50% or more or 80% and somehow drive this out of the Republican Party. It has is, it is consumed the party. The populist base has, has revolted. It has overthrown the establishment. But the good sign here, especially with with you know former President George W. Bush coming out of of kind of you know the the traditional silence that former presidents have taken and get involved in politics, is a very important sign. It's an important sign for a whole lot of reasons. The first is it means that there is going to be a push back. There is going to be a fight uh, with all of the resources, not just dollars, but institutional um, resources that the establishment can bring to bear to fight. I think that having it in Wyoming is very symbolic. I think that if anybody can beat it back, a Cheney in Wyoming can probably beat this back. Um, but just simply showing the willingness of not just the president, but all the names that you mentioned that are willing to fight for this are very profound. You know, um, And I think that it's it, it, the way that this will be won, the way that this fight will be won yeah. will be brick by brick. It's going to be battle by battle. It's going to be very tactical and it's going to be on the margins. It's not going, it's going to be limiting the ability of the influence of this rising element in the party to uh, influence state by state. It's going to be a long, protracted, dragged out battle that will probably last a couple of decades and I think that this is a very important sign. Um, like I said, I think it's going to be a a um, a small sliver of the Republican electorate. I don't think that the the uh, the Bush Cheney wing of the Republican Party is terribly significant, but it doesn't need to be. It needs to be significant enough. It needs mm. to be influential enough. Mm. Um, and that's going to be, I think, the goal here is to try to limit and contain that. And I think we're going to start seeing more and more of these voices coming out. And my hope is that there will be room for them. A lot of these people are going to be castigated for not coming out early enough. Uh, we, we saw that with uh, former governor of, uh, of, uh, of New Jersey, mm-hmm. uh, you know, speaking at the, at the Reagan Library, um, basically saying that we can't be a party of lies, yep. uh, even though he was complicit in it. Uh, during some of these, uh, dur- during the, the previous administration. And I think that there's going to be a, a rallying effect that's going to happen. And what we always said, even during the Lincoln Project days, was every voice that stands up make the cor- makes the chorus grow grow louder. And, and that's important. It's important right now to elevate and amplify those voices, win or lose, because the more that come out, 
the stronger the opposition becomes and the stronger the opposition within the Republican Party that remains is going to be what's critical to this. It prevents it from being a purely bilateral conflict here. It does weaken the Republican base even nominally and those nominal weaknesses are what's going to make you know history on the margin one way or the other. Yeah, I think just to underscore your point about the Bush wing being the the less significant, you know, piece of the party now, right? This controversy has been good for Cheney's fundraising. Um, she raised $1.5 million in the first quarter of 2021, but Marjorie Taylor Greene raised twice that in mm-hmm. the first quarter of 2021, mm-hmm. double that. Um, so, you know, with the, the, like, what's the likelihood that at the end of the day, Cheney's going to, you know, raise enough money, be as, you know, run, run as effective as a campaign as she needs to in order to, to, to hold on in Wyoming? I mean, Trump won 70% of the votes in, in, in Wyoming, Susan, in 2020. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, he he underperformed Cynthia Loomis, who got 73% of the vote in Wyoming. So this is, this is a very much an uphill battle for Cheney to hold on. So we think. Okay. And the reason why, so I say so we think, first of all, there's only so much money you can literally spend in Wyoming. Like yeah, you can buy television true. ads and do direct mail every single day and buy every ad there is out there. And you still cap out at a pretty low number in what we talk about, you know, yeah. hundred. it's not a hundred million dollar race. You literally can't spend that money there. Yeah. But what I'm curious about in Wyoming, and sometimes I think we have to look state by, you know, district or state as individuals. And in this case, I think Liz Cheney, in Wyoming is something to look at a little differently than a national, what's going on nationally within the party. And I don't know if we're hearing the loudest voices, like I think we are in Oklahoma, like the party that Trump built, because let's not forget the day Trump took office, this was actually the smartest thing his campaign ever did. They went to every state GOP party, it didn't matter how blue it was, or how red it was, and they started feeding their people into it. So for f- over mm. four years, Trump people have been infiltrating the, the state parties. So the state party may get behind a primary challenge against Liz Cheney, but again, that usually affects how many people on the ground you can have, how much money you can have. The party, not having the party endorsement with that name, I don't know if that's just a loud voice versus what people Mm. will actually do on the ground. But I will say in the bigger picture, I think that primaries for the next maybe six or three congressional cycles can potentially get rid of the neo-fascism that's growing in the the state parties. And why I say that Mm. is the best hope the Democrats have for winning in 2022 is that Republicans put up Trump-like candidates in swing districts. And they will. Because, for example, you take a John Kacko, congressman from upstate New York, who was sent out to negotiate, if you remember, the, the, the January 6th commission um, in good faith with his Democratic partners, and McCarthy stabbed him in the back. Um, if he runs again, he's going to get hit with a primary. Mm -hmm. If that primary, if that person wins the primary, there's no way they win a Hillary Clinton district (laughs) in upstate New York. It becomes, so they end up losing. So I guess what I'm saying is the party through enough cycles 
will start looking for a new leadership because it's just the nature of the way state parties work. Mm. You can't go in there and have three seasons and lose. Mm. It just doesn't, it just doesn't work. Um, and that's what you, you know, it, New York can probably, Democrats can pick up four seats in New York alone. Think about that. Yeah. That doesn't mean With, that the Republicans who get into office aren't going to be extremist election deniers though, because there will be those. There will be those, but I'm just saying, I don't think that the, there will be those from conservative districts yeah. where you're going to out conservative, right. Yeah. right? You're going to, that's going to, well, that's let's, let's not happen. even call it conservative, out fascist, right? Yeah. It's not even, this has nothing to do with small C conservatism. Nothing. Absolutely nothing. nothing correct. Right? So, so it's basically can, how, who can be the Trumpiest, who can, who can, who can suspend reality the furthest for the longest. Right. Who can look like they are most behind Trump because Trump is the leader of the neo-fascist movement in the United States. That's, I think, the yeah. best way to describe it. Yeah. That's what he is. He is the leader of a neo-fascist movement. And and a lot of these so, people sort of coming up in his shadow are going to, like Eric Greitens, who is a, this is a great counterfactual, right? The former Missouri governor who resigned amid several scandals is now running for Senate in 2022. And he just announced that if he wins election, um, he's not going to support Mitch McConnell as the Republican leader. He told uh, uh, Steve on Steve Bannon's podcast, he goes, the Republican Party is now the MAGA party. Well, and then you have Heller in Nevada who just basically won't say if Biden's the president. Yeah, and unbelievable. He, and, he, <laughs> and he's considered the moderate. Yeah, yeah. My so once upon right. a time client, will, Dean Heller. <laughs> they will, they will, people will jockey to win the Republican primary to be that candidate. And if they are from a state that's dominated enough by Trump supporters, they they may be able to pull it out. Yeah. But th- that's one problem. But then we're talking about taking back the party. And the yeah. taking back the party begins in swing states and swing districts, basically keeping the House majorities with the House and Senate majorities with Democrats. That's what the most important thing of 2022 is really about. It's yeah. preventing Trump and neo-fascism from winning. So, Mike, what do you make is going to be the actual impact of the infighting? Do you see one side going to win and push the other out? Should we expect these competing factions to hurt each other in the elections? Beyond that, these guys are fighting stories. What do, they, what do the conflicts actually mean? That's a really great question. I think Susan was tapping into something there because, look, there's really no more moderate conservative split anymore. These factions aren't the typical factions that we've been looking at. You mentioned Heller. Look at Susan Collins. Yeah. You know, endorsing LePage now too. I mean, Susan Collins was always held up as the model of 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 moderate republicanism. I mean, that's that's gone. She's supporting Trumpers. She's she's, you know, moving away from from um from the the pro-choice positions that she's been on. I mean, she's she's completely in order to survive, she has to be um, you know, allied with the Trump I don't want to call it a faction. It's the dominant wing of the party. It's overwhelmingly yeah. dominant. And that's – it's again, it's about fealty. It's about loyalty to the leader here. So um, as a, again, it, I think it's important for everybody to not view this as 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 the traditional moderate conservative battles that define most of, of our adult lives here and trying to move the party in one direction or the other. What this is really about is – is patriotic Americans using whatever resources and and influence they have over remaining members in the party that ha- don't have this fever 
you know, yeah. uh, breaking off. And, and can we do it in, in just enough amounts to prevent um, this, this rising fascist movement from, from taking power in as many places as possible? And so, like I said, it's not – it's really not, a, 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 I think, a, an, a, an appropriate way to look at it as a bilateral conflict. It's not – it's not – that's not what's happening. What's going to happen is can we in time peel off enough marginal support to prevent this from growing beyond the most conservative areas of the country? And I think that's part of what Susan was saying was most – these folks at this time cannot win these marginal or nominal districts. They can win primaries. But they're not going to be able to win in general elections. I think the goal here is to limit and contain everywhere where they can win, um, which gets back to kind of the the you know the Mona Sharon article, which is you know it, do you support democracy um, or do you not? That's really what we're talking about right now: is will we allow this social phenomenon to consume the country and the political system in in a giant conflagration, or will we not? Will enough people stand up and say, oh, "I've had enough"? Yeah. And that's why so it, it is so important to see a George W. Bush, uh, the Cheneys, the Romneys, the you know these these uh, these figures in the party standing up, and each one gives the other strength to stand up again and start building uh, just enough support. I have I think that they are aware that that it's gone, that they're not going to be able to pull the party back out of again this fever, this madness. It's gone, but can it can it be? Limited? Can it be contained so that it does not consume the entire political system? Because it doesn't need much. You know, you're you're reminding me of about you know if you rewind the clock about a year from right now, um, it was it was right at the time that you know you and I were we were we were talking about like at the Lincoln Project we began leaning into the message that democracy is on the ballot this year, mm -hmm. right? Remember that and how chilling yeah. it was when we first started discussing that line of messaging? Yeah. Like we're really here. That's yeah. that's where we are as a country and that's actually what's at stake in 2020. Well, yeah, it was and we won, but not by much. Mm -hmm. And the people who were on the other side of that debate didn't just go home and change their minds. That fight is still very much raging, and it's a whole. They're a whole lot stronger now than they were in 2020. Well, and we have to win every fight, yeah, because they're tearing institutions That's down. That's right. Yeah. Once they once they get in, they're just they're just ripping it down. And once you rip it down, real rebuilding it is you know it's an extremely difficult process. Okay, let's talk about the debt ceiling. This week, Democrats have been working to avert a government shutdown to avoid the U.S. defaulting on its loans. On Tuesday night, the House of Representatives voted to fund the federal government past the end of the fiscal year on September 30th and to suspend the debt limit, which is the legal limit on the amount of money that the Treasury can borrow through 2022. That proposal has no chance of passing in the Senate because of unanimous Republican opposition to raising the debt limit. According to analysts, the likely best case scenario of not raising the debt limit and the U.S. government default is a mild recession. That's the best case scenario. And Moody's estimates that nearly 6 million jobs would be lost, the unemployment rate would spike to nearly 9%, stock prices would plummet and wipe out about $15 trillion in household wealth. Not raising the debt ceiling would mean that payments to federal workers, Medicare benefits, military salaries, and Social Security checks would all stop. And one of the key things to remember here is that this is entirely created by Congress. There is this concept that you learn in high school or, or middle school in U.S. history class and government where the Congress has the power of the purse, right? 
Congress gets to say, this is how much federal money we're going to spend and what we're going to spend it on. Congress also gets to say how much money they're going to require people to pay in federal taxes. So when the amount of money Congress decides to tell the government to spend is greater than the amount of money they tell the government to collect in taxes, the Treasury then has to borrow money to spend on the things Congress told them to spend money on. So before before we get into the politics of this, Susan, can you outline uh, just what the debt limit, why why the debt limit was created and and whether or not it still serves the purpose that it was created to serve? Well, I can't get into the details. Frankly, Mike probably could do this better than I can in like the, the beginning of <laughs> where the debt ceiling came. He's nodding, no, no, no. But I can tell you it has been considered very antiquated for a very long time. We're the only nation that does things like this. It's basically, look at it as a credit card. The U.S. had a credit card. We spent all this money, and now we have to pay the bill for what we spent. We're not authorizing money to be spent on other things. We're just paying our bills. That's it. Now, when we talk about government shutdown, that's about, you know, what are we going to pay for in the future versus, meaning the future like tomorrow, but versus what we've already spent. Mm -hmm. Now, Mitch Mc, I read a great article uh, the other day by Greg Sargent in the Washington Post, and he used a quote from Mitch McConnell back from 2001 when hmm. discussing the debt limit. He said, it's a hostage that is worth ransoming. Wow. Meaning it is a tool. Yeah. And it's a power. And it's what Mitch McConnell did when he was leader. Hmm. You know, at some point, in a very nice way, I do believe in a very positive way that the Democrats are really trying to govern, but they don't have a governing partner. So they, they, they have to kind of take it on its own. And what Mitch McConnell is saying, by the way, is, is kind I mean, it's true. The, the Democrats can pass this without any Republican support. Yep. And the Republicans have said they aren't going to filibuster it. So you just go through the reconciliation process and you guys are going to do that all on your own anyway, so just go have at it. But he's saying if you if you do it um, differently, we will filibuster it. Yeah. So that's the problem. <laughs> but it is a political tool that, frankly, should be abolished. And I say this about the filibuster, as you know, almost every week. Mm -hmm. If you don't do it, Democrats, Mitch McConnell will. <sighs> Okay, so since so you're, you're going to stand on circumstance, <laughs> yay, we still have the debt ceiling and yay, we still have the filibuster, but oh yeah, we have no power because Mitch McConnell and yeah. Kevin McCarthy are the leaders. <laughs> yes. Okay, so since you brought up Mitch McConnell, I want to play two clips that represent diametrically opposed views on whether or not we should raise the debt ceiling. So here is Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell on raising the debt ceiling. Republicans are united in opposition raising the debt ceiling. Now, here's Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell in 2019. So you are expecting then to raise the debt ceiling once again? Of course. We, yeah. will, never, we will never have America default. Well, we raise the debt ceiling because America can't default. I mean, that would be a disaster. So it, it, it is <laughs> totally, utterly hypocritical. Mitch McConnell has voted to raise the debt ceiling 32 times, including three times while Trump was president. So, Mike, if you know if he's going to flip his stance on something as allegedly critical as the debt limit based on who's in power, why are some Democrats acting like they can negotiate with Senate Republicans? 
That's a great question. I think it's what Susan said earlier, which is they're trying to govern or they feel this this obligation to govern because that's the model that they have operated in for decades. Well, they're also in power right now. Then they're in power, right? And and I think that there's this desire to kind of make the system work. And I think that's the, the two different countries that we're living in at this moment in time is one party is acting like a, a healthy political party. The other one is not. It, it has no intent or no desire to be a governing partner. And I, that may sound like a compliment to the Democratic Party. It's really not. It's it's kind of a, a splash of cold water in the face saying, wake, wake up. Look mm-hmm. what's going on here. And start making you know things work in a very different way because you're not going to have somebody who's going to just look. I don't think McConnell's bluffing. I, I mean, oh no, definitely not. They're not. They're not going to be part of this. Right. Yep. <laughs> so you better figure out how to make this work if you want to make this work. And that's that's. I think that's the lesson here. And it's not just a lesson for this situation. It's just that's the way this is going to be. Look, hypocrisy used to be the most salient issue in politics, right? But. You know, McConnell did this with with Merrick Garland with the Supreme Court, right? Is we're not going to replace this seat, you know, in the year before presidential election, and then of course they jam it through in a few weeks when when Ruth Bader Ginsburg passes away. Uh, yeah. That's just politics. It's just it's just they've got the majority. They're they're when they had the majority, they 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 don't. He's going to use the tools at his uh, disposal. I think it's a great quote. This is a hostage worth ransoming. I mean, I love that. That's very it's very typically McConnell. Yeah. But you better behave. You better react to him the way that he's behaving because that's the way he's going to behave. Yeah. <laughs> Susan. Exactly. You got to kick him in the teeth. I mean, like that's what it comes <laughs> down to. Mitch McConnell only responds to power. And frankly, right now, he almost seems, and not because it's a 50-50 split, but he is equal partners with Chuck Schumer in what's happening in a lot of ways, which is bananas. Like, that should not be the case. I I have a lot of issues with the way Chuck Schumer is trying to lead this conference. I mean, he should be putting up $15 minimum wage. He should put up the child tax credit on its own. He should put up tax code that that change tax code that taxes wealth, not just wages. Make Republicans vote on it. do all of these things. Make Republicans vote on those, you know, a couple of those things, actually Republicans would vote for it. Um, I think that there is room for negotiation, but if not, make them vote against it. At least get your, your members on the record taking some good, strong votes to take them into those that need it in 2022. That's what Mitch McConnell does. Where Democrats are worried about, oh, we lost the vote. It didn't go through. Mitch McConnell, when he lost the vote, he'd say, oh, we, this is just one more step in the right direction. We didn't get it this time, but we're moving the ball forward. That's where, again, it's about how you use your power. And McConnell will respond to that. But otherwise, again, you're going to be sitting there out of power saying, but we kept the filibuster while during our time in office. Yeah, what, what good is that going to do you? Okay, so here's a real question for you, Susan. Like, like just to to round out this topic, the, the Republicans, uh, while, while it is certainly you know not believable, right? Their 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 argument here is has to, has everything to do with spending, right? Um, they don't want to be complicit in that future spending. That's the way that Mitt Romney used the word complicit. So. And now you have Trump, who released a statement this week saying it would be foolish and unpatriotic not to use the debt ceiling as a negotiating chip. And so the real question is, how much does this matter to most Americans? How much does this fight, like, does this fight matter at all? Are the numbers that we're talking about completely inaccessible and unfathomable? Are they too big to understand? And and sort of what, what really matters here from a communications perspective? Because obviously, 
The Republicans claim that, you know, oh, we can't be complicit in so much spending. The Trump administration added almost $8 trillion to the federal deficit. And the, the tax cuts alone are going to cost almost $2 trillion over 10 years. So if if that kind of hypocrisy doesn't really matter to everyday voters, then then what should Democrats be doing on a messaging front to, to make Republicans own this potential shutdown? Gambling with their jobs, essentially. Well, it only matters to the American public as a whole is if the government shuts down and they don't get their Social Security check. If their neighbors don't have a job to go into. We saw it under Trump. We had two shutdowns under Trump. As far as the debt ceiling, I don't think anyone gives a hoot about what happened there. And yes, you could say, well, we're trying to stop out of control spending. You know what? The thing that the Democrats are moving forward, which I have a lot of issues with, okay? But if I'm them, I'm going to say, yeah, but this is what we're spending it on, your child care. We're spending it on your healthcare, like you are, and you're getting actual checks and seeing real changes. That's what they should be talking about. They get, I don't understand why they're even talking about the debt ceiling or the looming government shutdown. They should be talking about the three, five, three point trillion dollar uh, bill, not in its entirety as, as reconciliation, but breaking it down and saying, this is what we're going to do here. And this is what we're going to do there. Again, I, I think that number is too high. I think they're trying to move us into a different social environment through this, this spending. I mean, we haven't seen anything like it since the 60s, and it is going to change who we are as a nation, which I have issue with. But again, I'd rather see them win than Republicans, because at least I know what their, what their values and principles are. I can live to fight that fight. Yeah, I can live to fight tax policy in in next year. I can't live to fight if our democracy fails because the secretary of state votes to overrule an election. Yeah. But Democrats just need to get back to bare bones. Like this is what you've got. And by the way, don't forget what you already get, gave people. Yeah. We gave you $2,000 and I guess you can't say we gave it to you, but you know, you, th this is what our response was doing this and building up a safety net. And this is the other big thing they have to do on the comms front. When they talk about building a safety net, it seems like it's where, where it hits independents the wrong way and Republicans. It's like, oh, you're, you're building, spending all this money on them. Mm. And it could be immigrants. It could be, you know, people of color. It could be, you know, they, they, they think of it differently. Meanwhile, the social net that they're actually providing is for more middle-class voters. Yeah. I mean, not voters, uh, citizens. Yeah. So it's they need to break that out better than just saying it's a social net. I think they need to say, we want to provide you better health care. We want to provide you better child care. We want to provide you better education. And they still haven't, in this $3. trillion mess, put in taxing wealth, which is the kicker of all kickers. They love saying that Amazon doesn't pay taxes. This bill will not make Amazon pay taxes. Mm. They will still pay zero taxes mm. next year. And that's, I actually think, is really hypocritical. And you'll see some of that populism on the right challenge the, the Democrats on. Because that's an interesting messaging tool that you can break down to what people like. You know, oh, Amazon and Nike aren't paying taxes. Yeah. Well, that's bad. And this didn't do anything to fix that. And the Democrats did nothing to change it. 
we should leave it there. On Tuesday, 33 major companies, including Amazon, Facebook, Pfizer, and Tyson Foods, pledged to train and hire Afghan refugees resettling in the United States. And this effort is spearheaded by the Tent Partnership for Refugees, which is a network of over 180 global businesses integrating refugees, founded by Hamdi Ulakaya, who's the founder and CEO of Chobani. In the group's release about the pledge, Ulakaya said, I've said this before and I'll say it again. The moment a refugee gets a job, it's the moment they stop being a refugee. It's the moment they can stand on their own two feet. It's the moment they can make new friends. It's the moment they can start a new life. Other companies include, but are not limited to, Hilton, Deloitte, Gap, HP, IHG Hotels, Ipsos, MasterCard, Panda Express, Sodexo, TripAdvisor, Tyson Foods, Uber, UPS, Wayfair, and Western Union. On the refugee resettlement front, Airbnb announced on Wednesday that they are doubling the number of Afghan refugees they'll house, and that's now up to 40,000 people. So, Mike, this is really interesting because you and I have spoken about corporate citizenship a couple Mm -hmm. times around Georgia's voting law and the pressure employees were putting on publishing companies over deals uh, you know, to former Trump administration officials. How should we be thinking about these companies committing to training and employing Afghan refugees? I, again, to our previous conversations, I think it's, it's profoundly important. And I think that corporations are going to increasingly play a role in driving some of the social values that we have as a country and, frankly, protecting the underpinnings of democracy at a certain point, too. Uh, not to get off topic, but you're seeing some co- corporations in Texas pushing back too with some of the Texas abortion laws that have have been pla- uh, right. passed, and so this is right in line with that. And I, I think that I think that y- you know democracy and capitalism is good for business, and having a healthy society is good for for business. And I think that you're going to see uh, more and more corporations taking these types of postures to help. Um, help make our society work, a, a multiracial democracy work. That's the way of the future. Uh, it's the way of, of, of the global economy. And I think you're going to see it uh, play out. So I, I look, I think corporations are going to be viewed very differently um, in the coming years. They're certainly not now, but I think that they're realizing that they're going to have to start playing a much more significant role in a lot of the social disruption um, that they either have caused or are witnessed and being part of, um, especially as government becomes, you know, less and less a functioning partner in making society work, corporations are going to have to do exactly what they're doing here, which is they're going to have to step up and say, this is good for business. Having a healthy, productive society is good for business. It's good for markets. And it's good for the expansion of what it is that we do. And and if government can't do that, we're going to have to fill that void. So Susan... Last week, the Biden administration let governors and mayors in 46 states know the number of refugees that their state is expected to receive in the coming weeks. And Axios reported that not a single official declined to take in Afghans. A late August CBS YouGov poll has 81% of respondents in favor of helping Afghans who worked for U.S. troops and officials in recent years come to the U.S. But then the AP reported last week that former Trump aides are working to build Republican opposition to Afghan refugees. And it looks like Stephen Miller is the ringleader of this. Um, and Trump's former budget chief, Russ Vaught, is also working on building opposition to refugee settlement in the U.S. And he said, quote, from a political standpoint, cultural issues are the most important issues that are on the minds of the American people, end quote. Not COVID, 
not health care or voting rights or political corruption. He's saying cultural issues are the most important issues. So, you know, thinking like a, a communication strategist, what are the factors that these companies are weighing? And is this pledge a no-brainer from a comm standpoint? Uh, or is there some risk here? How do you how do you view this? Well, I'm just going to say, I want to be like on the positive off the bat. Like, sure. this is America at its best. It is. Like, let's it just love It is very encouraging, that. totally. This is, how, this is how our country became what it was. And I have to use the past tense because I don't think it's what it is right now. Mm. But um, given where we are. But this is who we are. Like, this is America. Like, we... Th- these refugees will make us better. But you know who else makes us better? Refugees from around the world, not just Afghanistan. It was a very calculated decision to say Afghan refugees, because while it was a horrible um, withdrawal from Afghanistan on the PR front for the Biden administration, the refugees, the attention what and who they were, as Mike was discussing, these are people who helped our country. Mm-hmm. These are people who fought beside us. Like these are people who are risking their lives to come here. Like to like that's a very appealing thing to Americans. Like we wanted to be out of the Afghan war, but by what by God, we're gonna help these people who love us so much and helped our our troops so much. So it's a it's an easy thing to 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 cover. Now, if Biden would say, oh, by the way, I'm going to add an extra 200 um, Haitian refugees from the southern border who are under at the, in Texas on the border there, my guess is that you would hear a lot of people complaining mm. and saying no bleeping way. Mm. You'd see, I, and probably a blue state, red state thing. Yeah. But and I think the Trump people are being very cautious and saying, or not cautious because they rarely are, but are being um, very specific on saying refugees, not Afghan refugees, Mm. because they know that Afghan refugees are very much welcomed by this country. Mm. So corporations, I love the fact that you opened up with that conversation with Mike, and I know you and Mike talk about this. I have slightly different views, but I, I, I love it from the corporate responsibility point of view. I just also think it was just a no-brainer. Like, I don't, I don't think they had this was corporate responsibility. I actually think it's to their benefit. Yeah, of course. And let's yeah. not forget, right now, the business community, what are they saying they need more than anything else? Workers. Yeah. These these refugees are not going to say, I'm not going to take the minimum wage job. They are not only going to be thrilled that they have it, they're going to rise through the ranks and probably own the company, but buys the company that they work for. So <laughs> this is, but but business needs it too. That's why they they literally, the businesses need the, the, the employees. Now that we're up to speed on a few of the biggest stories this week, let's turn to what you are watching. Susan, what do you have for us? Okay, so <laughs> this is a little different. I was reading in uh, Sabato's uh, Crystal Ball that on September 26th, Joe Biden's going to be able to release all of the findings of the JFK report from... <laughs> I guess the act was put in, in place in 1992, even though the assassination was 58 years ago. Yeah. And like we, we've seen dribbles come out and they keep saying for this reason or that. And, but now everyone, 
Everyone's like basically dead. And it's not like we're going to reveal sources and methods back then. Right. But like in one dump, we learned that, you know, the CIA wanted to recruit the mafia to do a hit on Castro. <laughs> like we could like we could see like there could be some interesting things. But what I liked about it in the bigger picture was this is a big conspiracy theory yeah. that we hear about. And or there's many conspiracy theories about who shot JFK it, or there's some that saying he's still alive, like, you know, or he was alive for many years. Right. Living underground. I mean, he, with Q for all I know. But um, this is a way of saying government can be transparent, especially mm. in the world of conspiracy theories that we live in. So it's just a nice, it's a small thing, but I actually think it's an important thing to say. We are willing to show our weaknesses back from back then and and, and move forward mm. and move on and, and let the public know. You, you think it's going to have a big impact on, on trust? It, it may just have a small impact, but I'm really okay with small impacts now. Yeah. I don't that there's no great, like, we're not going to have a great impact. Maybe yeah. It's going to only be off of little chips that we get to put in there yeah. to eventually create like a whole token, if you will. Yeah, fair point. Mike, what are you watching? I'm watching the Haitian immigration situation on the Texas border um, for a whole host of reasons. There's so many layers to it, how the Biden administration is going to deal with it, the fact that we're dealing with essentially – Black refugees, the fact that we're dealing with it in, you know, the, the photos that have come out with, you know, patrol officers, ICE patrol officers on horseback uh, where, you know, it, 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 there has been no uh, more emotional an issue in my 30 years of working in politics and immigration. Um, uh, and so when these instances pop up, they are really – they really clarify – I think people's values and people's priorities and people's perspectives. And I think we're going to get some real insight into the Biden administration and how they're going to start handling uh, these issues, um, not just from a case-by-case -case basis, but from a comprehensive view. So I'm watching kind of the machinations of that, that, that story play out. Any predictions on how they – I mean I saw, I saw Jen Psaki answer questions about the footage of those patrol officers on horseback that looked like they were whipping people and mm – -hmm. Um, and she didn't really have an explanation. She handled, she handled the questioning, which was very interesting because the, the questioning that was being pressed over and over again was coming from the, from the left. Yeah. Um, the pressures she was getting from, was from the left and, you know, she was forced to say repeatedly, you know, obviously I can't imagine what circumstances, uh, would, would make this, un, you know, okay or understandable. It, it clearly is very, very bad. Uh, but I have to get more context. And that was the last I saw. And so I wonder how you think that will play out because because of the pressure from the left on the Biden administration. Yeah, that, that you put it perfectly. The pressure for Democrats on the left on immigration is overwhelming, even though most of public opinion sits to the right. So they're really split on this. And mm -hmm. that, that's why I'm following the story is I don't know. I don't have an answer. But what I do know is it's going to be – like I said, it's going to be a clarifying moment. I think they'll do their best to to try to you know split the baby as it were and try to give both sides a little bit, but that's not going to work. This is going to they're going to have to take a side, yeah. and it's going to be very very telling. And um, there's no there's no middle ground on immigration. It's just one of those issues where people are not persuaded one way or the other. It's it's an issue where people have a gut basic emotional raw response to it, and 
it, that usually sticks and it sticks for a lifetime. And it's, it's, that's why we haven't done comprehensive immigration reform in, since mm-hmm. the late 1980s. Mm-hmm. Is it's just, it, especially in a changing society, is it's so complicated, it's so difficult to do. And I think the best way to look at it is to think, how would the previous administration have dealt with the same situation, with these same photos, with the same, the same crisis situation? And to watch how the media handles it and, and the different biases that are brought to it by the, the talking heads that are, that, are, that are speaking about it. It's really a fascinating look at who we are as a people. It's, it's why this issue has always been a touchstone for me. And I think it just it, – it really clarifies who we are as a people when you are forced with making these very difficult decisions. Yeah. And it will be fascinating to watch. Mike – and Susan, before we go to the after party, aka Politicology Plus, and talk about this slew of stories uh, from from Bob Woodward and Robert Costa's new book, where can everybody find you on the internet? Susan, on Twitter at Del Percio S. And Mike, you can find me on Twitter at Madrid underscore Mike. And I'm at Ron Steslow, and we'll see you next week. Thank you to everyone at home and on the go for listening today. You can support the show by joining the growing, thriving community of Politicology Plus members and gain access to hours of special content designed to help you think like a political strategist and look further down the road than everyone else and understand the forces and figures shaping the fight for democracy. You can unlock this premium content at politicology.com slash plus. If you have any questions about anything we've talked about, you can reach us, as always, at podcast at politicology.com. Even if we can't respond, we do read everything you send us, whether it's an episode idea, a guest recommendation, or just a simple note about how the show has impacted you. And we love hearing from you. I'm Ron Steslow. I'll see you in the next episode. <laughs>